Welcome to the podcast of Small Differences with Ian and Otis. Hey Ian. Hey Otis. Huh? So, episode number three. That's right, we did it. Um, it's in the can, as they say. Um, this time we're, we're coming from Orinda, California. So yeah, You can probably hear that we're recording in a slightly different location. <laughs> Orinda sounds different than Castro Valley does. Well, it does because we don't have our sound buffer yes that's true so we're we're a little bit less high tech which oh okay (laughs) i'm letting you in on the behind the scenes secret the sound buffer is actually some sleeping pads that my wife constructed because she's she's good at podcasting i'm i'm the noob yeah i mean i would say that like that's worked out very well for us thus far my wife has worked out very well yes um Anyway, we, we covered a little bit on, um, I think the overall thing that we talked about is product sense in data science. Yeah. So that's that's what we're going to go with. That's the theme. Yeah. Uh, we talked about self-driving cars and AI and where you, what demands you can make on the world in order to make that product work. Yeah. Uh, and then kind of like what your technical systems have to do uh, to... Uh, to sort of provide that product out out into the world, uh, specifically around mo- moving data around. Uh, so we got into ETL uh, and how that tends to be a bugaboo for basically every company that I think any of us have worked at. It's like a system that no one's ever entirely satisfied with what your decisions are. So we, we talked about that. Yeah. All right. Well, I uh, hope you enjoy it. I'm... I think it's time for us to each get a something liquid beverage. Yes. Agreed. All right. Cheers. All right. So I want to I wanna discuss a tweet, and maybe this will be a thing where we, we have a, a section called Otis, Otis Reads Tweets. <laughs> we'll see. It, it might not be a good idea. I don't know. I feel like on occasion when Twitter poops itself over something, like... We could probably say something about that, but we'll see if we find it fun. I there there's a completely different tweet that nobody pooped themselves <laughs> over. There there was one where somebody somebody described Bitcoin as what like the their metaphor was. It, it's like if you idling your car could solve Sudoku's, <laughs> and then you could trade for heroin. <laughs> and I think, Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't remember who did it, but uh, yes, kudos to you. You have the most succinct description <laughs> of anything ever. Yeah, your your Twitter feed is clearly much more interesting than mine because mine is pretty much just filled with animals falling down uh, or small children falling down, mostly because I find that humorous. Okay. So <laughs> <laughs> they, Both of those things happen a lot, too, animals and small children. Yeah. Yes. Um, so yeah, actually, this is this is a business this is a business view a Bloomberg business view article, um, wherein one of the most famous data scientists, I would say, the guy that I tried to learn machine learning from before deciding that I uh, had better things to do with my <laughs> my spare time, um, Andrew Ng gave like a bad money quote to a reporter, I would say. Um, the you know the gist of the article is hey self driving cars are proving harder than <laughs> than we initially thought they would be which again everyone put on your shocked face wow human cognition human human doing subcognitive things is hard to, for a computer to simulate whoa mm, very 
surprising. Yes. Um, so, the, you know, the, the gist of the article is like, well, it turns out it's actually hard for a computer to drive, to drive because it's not just a bunch of, it is not a bunch of formal processing, or it is, it's yeah. just very complicated. Um, and, oh boy. Yeah, so the, the key, uh, I guess, kind of insight of the article is, uh, or, and, and it kind of comes in the first line, you're crossing the street wrong. Uh, which is clearly the thing that the technologists have, or, or that the journalists have distilled down from what the technologists have said. And, and it, the article itself is worth a read, uh, because what they're actually saying is much more nuanced than that. <laughs> Uh, and it's and it's one of those interesting situations where probably everybody's right. Yeah, everybody. Every, I I do th- I do think that Ing is wrong in an important way. Like he is saying, like we need to retrain. He, he is effectively saying humans behave too erratically for the computers, and we need to have a campaign where um, people are told to cross the street in a more like lawful, predictable, yeah. um, less human way. For the sake of my technology and my investments, <laughs> fair enough. Okay, so <laughs> before before we get into that, uh, I I kind of want to just like 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 touch on one broader point, which is how much of a miracle it is that these systems work at all. I I like allow me to go in and go like it's amazing, right? Yeah. Like the the fact that a car can drive badly. And is amazing yeah. on its own. And again, this is like really to put this in perspective. You take the human brain, and it has the ability to do like formal reasoning—the stuff we associate with like the neocortex and what computers do very easily. Mm-hmm. The chess-type limited moves in a formal system. Um, all of the other stuff your brain does has nothing to do with that in a lot of ways. Yeah. Like it's a bunch of shit mm-hmm. that you like developed to make you survive and there's nothing to do with like what a computer does in that other stuff and part of that stuff that makes you good at driving is actually more related to the like you know north african plains ape part of your brain so again like we want to emphasize like much respect to the ai researchers trying to teach a computer how to drive and also, this is some hard stuff. You know that it's hard stuff. Yeah, it, and and I mean, you know, to me, one of the sort of fascinating things about this topic in general is that before the compute power was was really available to make deep neural nets work, like people were trying other ways to teach cars to drive and were phenomenally unsuccessful at it. I should also add, there's no way that like anything other than a neural net type system probably has any shot yeah. at doing this. So yeah. again, yeah. we're it's not you know it's the dancing dog. Right? Yeah, you don't complain that the dog dances badly. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, it's so, that it dances. So 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 let's just lay the foundation here and essentially say like, look, this technology is amazing, and I, I personally am also like very very. Uh, you know, very bullish on the potential of it, ma- mainly because like humans are also terrible at driving, and so like if you can actually get this thing to work, the the life savings alone 
will will probably be like one of the huge economic gains of our time. Never mind like you know sort of social and like all 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 that other stuff. Is it, it's just like you, you are going to save so many lives here that it will be unbelievable. Yes. Okay. And one, now that we've established our admiration for this line of work, for the people who do it, their their intelligence, and the the fact that they're working on something yeah. really really important, I want to pick on Ing a little bit here. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, and I also want to like add that you know if I were important enough for New York Times reporters or Bloomberg reporters to come stick a microphone in my face and ask me questions, I would say something pretty stupid probably <laughs> pretty quickly mm-hmm. so well i mean honestly i have an opportunity to do that with a podcast every week so i'm sure we'll all we'll all see we'll all fall down that failure mode eventually so i don't want to like I, like this is not one where like oh i'm so much smarter than this guy i i get it i i'm, I'm like i'm there with you buddy <laughs> like i eventually i would say something incredibly uh, like uh, i would say something that would be pulled out quoted and mocked by a psychologist mm-hmm. or worse somewhere um, I, I think you can't like the, the world owes your technology no favors is the, the essential thing here. I think it's, it's absolutely true that like every other technical innovation that mankind has had, people adapted to it and it probably started out more dangerous than it became. Sometimes it started out incredibly dangerous simply because the capitalists funding it didn't have any you know, gave no shits about <laughs> who it killed. Um, but all like almost to a um, like to a single thing the technology proves its value and then the adaptation comes yeah there's very few where the world just goes like oh yes i do see how this would be <laughs> beneficial to me and we will all start crossing the street in uh, a more orderly fashion and cur- like curb what is it like they're basically saying like look humans can you curb your uh propensity to manufacture edge cases from our technology <laughs> yeah yeah i mean i in like in like kind of reading through there was there's definitely some of that that you know i sort of felt like like almost a frustration coming through from 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 the technologist side and like i i feel for them because like this is a hard problem and i know that i've definitely built my fair share of systems where like i do something and i'm like this is amazing if only all of you would do this other thing differently than you are doing <laughs> for those of you at home uh ian is miming shaking an imaginary user <laughs> in a way inadvisable <laughs> and and i mean the reality is that like those systems they they don't work <laughs> Uh, and it's not that they can never work, but when that happens to you, it's usually a signal that one of two things is going wrong. Like either your technology is not mature enough to solve the uh, to to like solve the exact problem that 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 like you would like to solve, and you have to put more work into into like kind of getting it there. Uh, or that you need to change your problem, right? That that you basically have to say, okay, like I'm not ready to do this thing yet. If I if like I was amazing, or or, or like if this thing worked exactly how I how I conceptualized it in the lab, then I would be there. But I'm not, and so like my choice now is either I go back to the lab or I change my problem. 
Yeah, and I and I I mean to I want to make sure that we get across that probably most people working on self driving cars understand that they're probably in this position these yeah. days, including the poor data scientist quoted. Yeah, right. Where you know it's obvious from a lot of the designs he's put on his cars that he's like trying to make the the self driving car as conspicuous as possible, um, and you know they're changing in the way that they think about about cars, but. It, it like it's a it's a fundamental truth you know there's a lot of people out there that are this is going to be old news to them but like you've got humans interacting with your machinery on yeah. some level you either have to adapt to the machinery or figure out how the humans are going to adapt to, to it yeah and, and 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 the interesting thing as well to me about about uh the article was uh so the quotes from the non-technologists kind of showed that like we have a marketing problem to solve here uh because you know one of the things that uh that 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 this professor of psychology who's quoted here says is he's saying you know he's essentially complaining that the technologists want to redefine the goalposts to make the job easier and i mean in my view like that is actually a perfectly reasonable thing to do yeah, I I think it is as long as it's not paired with an unfeasible like an unfeasible behavioral request. Right? Yeah, 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 no, no, but like that's that's like kind of the thing, right? <laughs> where like where like it's 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 basically like you know that your users are not going to do X because they're human beings, and you've found yourself in a position where a human being naturally does not want to do X, right? So, so like it it's almost silly. To to like assuming that that there's value to be gained by having them do X prime instead, something that they are willing to do, mm-hmm. and that your technology can support. Like it would be silly to trash someone for saying, "Okay, well, let's solve X prime instead." Like it, like that that to me is like sort of one of the things that like as a uh, I mean as a data scientist is also a thing that like I've definitely had to learn like through my career that like you know when you're an academic and you're doing research and you find out that like oh the problem i'm solving like i can't solve it like you're kind of stuck but in a professional context like you always have the freedom to change your problem if that other problem is going to be valuable too yeah that would be like that would be a disaster right is to like for our like um, AI and self-driving car researchers at this point to say like, well, we promised you cars would drive themselves. We implied that you'd be able to do every single thing that you wanted to do, yeah. and that they'd be able to handle rural roads and jaywalkers and and snow, right? So by gum, we're just going to keep going down that track. Yeah, that would be a huge mistake. Like they shouldn't like at this point. Like sure, there are problems with self-driving cars. But, like, the expectations are more of a problem than the problems are, is a, a fair thing to say. Yeah, I, and, and, like, you know, to me, at least some of that is, like, you know, that's, that's a marketing issue, right? Got to educate, you know, do some education to your users as to, like, what it is your thing is actually going to do. It, it's a marketing issue. It's also, like, it is one of those issues that you earn by getting funding and... 
the PowerPoint deck doesn't say yeah. the, like, oh yeah, like non-cognitive things are really important to driving, and we don't really have a plan for that yet. Yeah. Um, so yeah, like I, I, I don't want to completely let everyone in that industry off the hook for creating the yeah. expectations that they are now. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, 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 I think of this with respect to my own work as well, and like I've definitely run into these. Uh, to these types of situations where like I built something that is like I can see that it's useful but it's also quite complicated and can be very difficult for for the user to conceptualize like exactly what it does and how it does it and so they don't necessarily know well like how should I interact with this thing like what is it expecting me to do when I do this and then they go and and do something and they get a result that looks counterintuitive to them now, for for the stuff that I do, like that result is not them getting hit by a car. It's <laughs> it's like other things. But uh, why does this query not work? <laughs> yeah, but 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 like that's that's definitely like kind of like when that happens, that's certainly a signal to me that like okay, I need to shift my mindset a little bit. And and that to me is kind of like one of the things that's sort of interesting to do here is also to like in a sense kind of like unpack the uh, the issue behind the issue because like I I feel like there's something a little deeper going on here than than just like hey this technology is like not working well. Uh, when there are like real pedestrians doing real things, <laughs> uh, because part of the issue may may well be that like that pedestrian who is looks like they're doing a weird thing, uh, do they have a reasonable expectation of what the car is going to be doing? Probably not, <laughs> right? Otis is shaking his head fairly fairly vigorously here, right? <laughs> like like it's a really complicated model that is sitting inside that car. And, you know, if you've ever seen one of these on the road, like, they don't look like human drivers, right? You don't always, you don't always see you, they, they don't, right? Yeah, like, I but, think that that's the, like, I'm not sure if that was the case in the one where the person died crossing the road. Yeah. Um, and then you, you have to kind of know what you're looking for. Yeah. Otherwise, it just, it just looks anomalous. Yeah. Right? Like, um, I don't think I really got used to them until, like, a good year in Mountain View. Yeah. Yeah. So like, you know, given that that's the case, that essentially means that like, that like you, you know, you as the pedestrian, like need to build a model in your own head of like, how is this thing going to behave? Right. Which means that there's like some level of consistency that you're looking for in what this other thing is doing. <laughs> right. And so, so, so to me, like one of the questions that I have, like behind the questions and I've never been able to audit one of these systems, so, like, I can't actually tell you kind of, like, what's going on underneath the hood. But one of the questions that I would have is essentially, like, uh, have, they, have they built in a way for, you know, for that car to be producing results that are consistent over time? Uh, and, that, and that are understandable over time, i.e., like there's there's one piece of it that's like oh here's here's the self-driving car model and then there's another piece of it that's like the engineered system that guarantees consistency of that model uh does that thing work so it's similar to like a testing framework and the, the actual website uh exactly 
Um, yeah, and I think uh, there. I feel like there are UX researchers screaming at us right now. Probably, like <laughs> they're just like, "Yeah, this this is what we do." <laughs> <laughs> and I think where where the lack of product sense I feel like is evident in the article is in that you can do this for the users that you kind of can know what their expectations and what they're doing. Yeah. Where you have some control of the information going to them. Mm-hmm. And there are there are some ways that you can do that. And obviously, like, um, some of the companies that are doing self-driving cars do that by, like, you have control of the information on the outside of the car. Yeah. Right? That's what you've got. Yeah. Um, you can send messages to pedestrians. You can have them read things. There's There's different things you can do. You don't have a lot of options that are literally outside of what the, is on the surface of your car. Yeah, and well so so you have the use case too. Mm-hmm. Right? So like, you know, imagine the use case of like of like moving luggage uh in like in like a like international airport mm-hmm. for instance, right? Like constrained pathways the cars like don't have to go in every you know in like in like every which way. Golf carts might be a good yeah. One. Golf carts like like might might be a decent one too. Although like those are really fun to drive. So like I, just saying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know that I would want someone to take. I mean, I would want someone to take my my commute away from me. But like. God damn it, like, let me drive on the golf course. <laughs> this is a part of you that I've never seen before. Yet. <laughs> One, that you golf. Yeah. Two, that you enjoy driving dangerously on a golf course. I, I mean, it, it's been many, many years since I've golfed, but the most fun part of it was the golf cart. So I, I agree with that. My dad is really good at golf, and yeah. I hate it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I mean, it would basically be like giving me a self-driving go-kart. Like I, I kind of feel like that would defeat the purpose of going to the go kart track. Right, fair, <laughs> so, fair, fair. Um. Uh, so yeah, so like I, I, I definitely agree with you that that like there's there there there's a lot of wrapping here that probably has to be done. Um, the thing that like I I at least know that is you know reasonable for for me to think about is is kind of like the system on the underneath there. Uh, like, how does the data move, right? Like, what are the inputs that, 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 that the models are actually getting? And, uh, and so, like, what information does kind of the decision-making apparatus of, of the car actually have when it's going to do whatever it is it's going gonna, it's, it's gonna to go do? The last point that that I that I'd like to make around this is really like, how do you know if you don't have an ETL system that you can work with? Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, basically because like it, on, almost everything is is going to look kind of unfamiliar to you, sort of stepping in. Um, for me, like the mark of that has always been. Do I need to write anything other than the data processing code itself? So, so if I need to pass in like database connection strings or, or like stuff like that, like either I'm at a super early stage company, which is like totally fine, great, I'm happy to do that stuff, um, 
or I'm at a company that has not yet invested in their ETL system. And, uh, and therefore, like, I know that I'm going to be like, I'm going to have to build some infrastructure. Uh, and, you know, obviously, if, if you're like super early, and you've never seen anything like that before, like, it's going to be hard to get that stuff right. And so, you know, you know, to me, that's kind of the telltale sign is, is basically like, can I just write my SQL or Python script, you know, let's say like my, you know, I, I write a load, you know, basically, I just tell pandas, like, go get x thing. Uh, and then I can write my processing on top of that and like, and like generate the output and the edges of that get handled for me? Or does that not happen? Yeah, um, I think, like, I think we should, yeah, we should shift a little bit. So yeah. like, you, you want to, you can tell a lot about your organization by how they think through the ETL problem. And they, you know, they're trying. <laughs> they're almost always trying, right? Um, there's a couple of different paths that they go down that I think are common mistakes. And I want to talk about that. So I mean, path number one is the GUI. And the GUI is bad, folks. The GUI is real bad. Um, the GUI is, a, you know, a drag and drop system for creating ETL. And... A, a graphical user interface. Yeah, for which is like such an old are, term. Yes, <laughs> who are much younger than us. <laughs> yes, this is a common term from the part of like from the you know the seventies or eighties when the when one actually computers, needed yeah. to distinguish that that was a that was a, a feature of a, a computer program. Yeah. Um, but the you know it, like I I remember turning on my PC and like having the DOS prompt like flash at me needing to type in Windows to get to somewhere where I could use a mouse. Yeah. Um, you should be able to not, like you should like you should be able to be familiar enough with the code you're writing that you don't need the GUI. You should, like if it's SQL based, like if it's just SQL based, like there's no GUI that's less complicated than fucking SQL, right? <laughs> like it's just SQL. I learned yeah. it in a weekend and I'm not that good at computers. <laughs> like, um... And it, it's just hard to make reproducible stuff. It's hard to, like, it's hard to do even the barest requirements of science. Like, our, like the, the, the scientific requirements of data science are not high. Yeah. Um, we don't care about replicability because we want to rerun the drug trial and have it come out exactly. We care about replicability because we want to build, you know, automation off of it. Or we want to yeah. build tests and know that we're mostly right. Yeah. about things and most GUI programs just can't do that and if they if they do have replicability it's through code that gets auto generated when you when you drag stuff and that stuff is not QCable most of the time yeah and then that's if you're lucky enough for it to be in a language that a, a real human uses yeah the oftentimes it's some like hybrid custom language um like that isn't, you know, it, like it was written just for this thing. And, you know, the intention is they're going to sell this to your company and then you're going to hire somebody who's just going to work in that language and they're going to be kind of a surf yeah. that can't get another job oh, at some those other. Are, those are even worse. Yeah. So uh, let's, let's, let's make a small digression there because like I feel like that point is critical and it's, and like it's, 
it's not isolated, unfortunately, to ETLs, mm-hmm. right? So, like, ETLs is where you will frequently see it manifest in in companies where they're like, oh, we shouldn't write code for this. You can buy it. And then they go and spend a bunch of money on what turns out to be a GUI-based system that has its own little configuration, like, layer to it that's sort of pseudocode. And, like, again, if you're early career, you are going to have a giant problem now. Yeah, right? you've learned pseudocode. You've learned pseudocode attached to this proprietary system. Like, tell me what your career prospects are after that. I mean, they're they're the same, if not worse. If you like, you've added some career experience in doing doing this thing, which is not a real language. And I'll I'll add like, this is Microsoft does this. Yeah. So this is not like, this is not just like a thing that like mid and small com- like a mistake that mid and small companies make. Like this is like Microsoft's going philosophy of how to do things. Like at least eight to five years back, they're better now. Yeah. Um, but. Okay, so, like, the important part that I really want to emphasize here is that, like, choosing an ETL system looks like a technical problem, and it's like, oh, we'll just choose the technology that's easiest for people to, like, use on a day-to-day basis, or we'll choose the technology that has the most features, or has the most power, or has, like, can do the most things on the most computers at once, and that's not the right way to think think about this like it's not remotely the right way to think about it i mean i would argue that's not the right way to think about any technical decision but etl is usually where this first shows up it's the only one where i i ever see this kind of like we'll just go down the feature checklist and and pick that based on that every other time i feel like people are recognizing that you've got one you've got to like you've got to understand how fast does your data need to move yeah what kind of data is it um and then you know what systems is it interfacing with yeah and then you've got to like the to me the most important part is like who are you going to like who is going to work on this data right who's going to work on your etl system what are their what do you want their career prospects to be where are you going to get them what are they going to do with most of their time because these are all going to be working on etl yeah so therefore like considerations of what they're working in when you're um, when they're not doing that, I, there was a like I talked to a, a data engineer recently. They built like their ETL system in Ruby, um, and I was like I asked them the leading leading question of like, so did your data scientists learn Ruby to like help write the ETL? And he's like, oh no, <laughs> of course not. And that was a big mistake for us to write it in Ruby because they all knew Python already, but like none of them wanted to like it was important to none of their career prospects to learn Ruby. I happened to like learned a little Ruby to work on an ETL system yeah. once, but like mostly that window has passed. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I mean, I uh, there's there's kind of a lot wrapped up in there. Mm-hmm. So so I'm wondering if we can kind of like 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 poke in to at least a couple of those places, mm-hmm. right? So. Uh, and 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 there's one thing that I would that I would add on the back end of that, like it's not just like who is going to work in this. It's also like what problem is it actually solving for you? Because uh, the other thing that you'll see is like you'll go to these big enterprises and they'll basically be running like they will essentially be running ETL projects. So you know they're they're big data warehouses and they're and they're and they're like essentially building up like this like magical data warehouse that is going to solve all their problems and then 
At any given moment, you can ask them what the timeline on that is, and it's five years out. It is always five years out. A year later, it's also five years out. And so, like, those projects just never end. <laughs> and so, like, the, the other key point about the ETL system is to sort of understand, like, all right, what do you actually want it to do? Like, like there's no system you could ever build that will do everything that you ever want it to do. Uh, let's talk about the labor market kind of, like, sort of arbitrage aspect of this because like like i think this this kind of ties back to to this idea of like dsls and like like the the ic version which is like should you want to work on this if it if like all it's doing uh uh is is like you know if you're like using someone else's proprietary piece of software where like you're not you know you're not writing code that's going to be valuable to you to you later so like i mean i i know i know what i've seen but but like kind of like how have you seen this kind of go bad <laughs> um th- which which part are the which... like the sp- specifically like you make a choice around an etl system mm. and then and and like y- y- you've you've chosen badly <laughs> yeah so i mean i think the couple there's a couple of different ways that it goes badly um most of the time people adapt right yeah. um the there has been the you know we, we pick this system and it's just like it's far more complicated to use yeah than anyone anticipated um and that you know no, the GUI, the yeah. GUI systems the are GUI system is yeah that one. they they're they look easier than they are yeah um yeah i've also seen the um it's just too high cost to interface with the ETL system. So then, then you get people doing a lot of their stuff off, like sort of off the books or on data that's like not necessarily like tested or integrated. Um, and I think then there's like, man, there's a really broad class of problems here, which is just like engineers build the ETL system and then they're like, Okay, data scientists, they're kind of like engineers. They'll just kind of work the same way we do. And then that's that's really as far as it goes. That's one where you see like usually you see Jenkins involved in it at some <laughs> point. And for those of you who've not like who are on the periphery of this, Jenkins is a very good like service to help you do good engineering and do collaborative and do like it it does like notifications. But I think most data scientists are just like confused and terrified by it. Yeah. And so like what usually has happened there is that like the first data scientist at that company was basically one of these people that's like it's they're an engineer that can like they've they've figured out how to do statistics and they're you know they're the real like they're that kind of data scientist and then they hire another one yeah and you open up you know open up the amazon box and like well that's not what we ordered (laughs) Um, and this person's just like i just know python i don't like what is what is going on here yeah um and then you know i think there's you know there's just a like you can just end up with too high an engineering requirement to get good like there's more to data science than engineering and you don't want to have an ETL system that has such high requirements that, like, you can't just like go out and hire a good, you know, pass by talented people um, because of that. Um, you know, on the other side, I think scripts and cron jobs can be bad, like a bad choice if it sits there for too long, too. 
Yeah. Because then it's just like there's no none none of the ways that you get data into the system feel right. Like if you're you're on BigQuery, like you can like bankrupt your company <laughs> by, by having by like having this gigantic monolithic dependency that runs all at once, right? Yeah. Uh, and it takes all data run. Yeah. I, I... I don't think I've seen a single company that made the transition from cron jobs to ETL framework at the right time. Yeah. Like most of them wait until too late and like eh, frankly, like if that's the worst mistake you end up making, like it's 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 not at all a big deal. So to, I mean the way that I, I sort of think about this is like if you're an IC Number one, you should absolutely want to be working in a canonical language. So if you walk in and someone's like, oh, just write your ETL in this like system that looks super funky to you and is not something that you can find on the internet, like, and eh, that's not going to be great. <laughs> Unless it's MySQL, then, then you also don't want to be working in uh, Sure. Um, <laughs> uh, and, then, and then the second piece is basically that, like, well, uh, if your uh, if your company has not yet invested in ETL, like they're probably going to have to, uh, and so you will end up needing to open up that conversation like sooner rather than later, especially if you're one of the early data science hires, because like there's going to have to be some way for for data to get to you, uh, and potentially eventually also ways for data to get to the rest of the organization. Which basically means that like some decisions need need to be made around like exactly how is this going to happen because uh, it probably can't just be like well we're going to string together a hundred SQL queries and hope it works forever. Yeah, you either have to be the person that writes that ETL system yourself, could be, yeah, you know, or you're going to have to make the case that like they bring someone in to help you succeed. And and you know, I think a lot you know more and more companies are hiring that first data science person to be the person who can write it themselves even if it's just the limited version yeah i'm still not like i don't know how great an idea that is uh, yeah. you, I, mean, <laughs> I mean early early stage companies are weird yeah early, right? early like you're supposed to do weird. you're supposed to do dumb stuff as an early stage company yeah. that's part of the deal i'm just saying and i don't think Ian or any of the other data scientists I will ever I have ever worked with will take offense to this. Like if you hire a data scientist to write your engineering level stuff, you get what you deserve. <laughs> <laughs> you you know, you're you're looking for scrappiness, not you know any of the things you actually get with engineers. <laughs> I will not argue with that. Yeah. No. So so there's just there's a lot more to cover here. Yeah. Right, like it's like it's not one podcast worth of topic, and I think we haven't even gotten into the, you know, they call it like the hot potato aspect yeah. of it. Is like nobody, nobody wants to write the ETL code itself, like yeah. because it's you know it's like unglorious, unfun. Um, it's it's like I described it to someone as like it's one where it's like a job where every mistake you make is magnified and every time you succeed no one cares. <laughs> that, that is actually an excellent way to to uh, describe those systems. Yeah, and, and and I think also like part of what I think we'll end up covering in a future podcast is one of the things that makes ETL so hard 
is it is is it sits at the interface between two separate groups of people who think about the world a little bit differently and like but they have to collaborate together to like do this right uh and so i think we'll we'll be able to kind of talk through at least some of the paradigms that people have had for doing this and and the pitfalls that you run into if you choose one over another yeah so uh, i think we will we will cover that next time um for now thanks for joining us this has been otis uh, and ian uh, you can talk to me uh, on Twitter uh, at Old Jacket, O-L-D-J-A-C-K-E-T. I forgot how to spell jacket there. Right? <laughs> uh, and at Ian Blue One, I-A-N-B-L-U, and the number one. If you want to ask us questions, we will be happy to read them on the next podcast. Um, you can send them to us at feed.back at smalldiffcast.com, or you can get us on Twitter I actually forget the Twitter handle of the <laughs> the podcast, but you can, you go can to, find it yeah, somehow. The internet's a pretty reasonable place uh, to navigate. Yeah, but you can also like you can also just you know go after both of us uh, yeah. as long as it's not you know harassing. <laughs> um, but you know, thanks for joining us.